Hey everybody, welcome back to the Lighting a Fire podcast in partnership with Christian Schools International. I'm Bryant Russ and I'm so excited to share with you our conversation for today. Now we normally start an episode with a little teaser quote from the guest, but instead today I wanted to play some of my own reactions to the things I learned in conversation with Brooke Hempel, Senior Vice President of Research at Barna Group. Spoiler alert, I said wow a lot. Yeah. Wow. 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 This is so fascinating. <laughs> wow. 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 That is amazing. Wow. Wow. I never would have thought of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. The way that we learn. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Wow. Oh, Frank, this is so good. This is like the most fascinating stuff. I, <laughs> I have to go grab another piece of paper because I just filled a whole piece of paper with notes. <laughs> I hope my nonsensical babbling gives you a sense of just how much you're going to learn in today's conversation with Brooke Hempel. In the editing I counted, I said, wow, close to 50 times. As Brooke shared research from Barna Group about Gen Z and the future of the Christian faith. Though some of the research is discouraging, I left this conversation feeling hopeful and more excited than ever about investing in Christian education. So grab a piece of paper, grab two pieces of paper, and get ready for today's conversation with Brooke Hempel. Brooke Hempel, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I'm so fascinated with what you do, and I'm curious just to hear a little bit more. Can you give me a snapshot of the kind of work the Barna Group does? Yes. Well, we have been studying the church and faith and culture and how those intersect at Barna for three and a half decades. So Barna has been tracking these trends on how people practice their faith, what they believe, and then how different cultural trends impact them in their lives. And so really our goal is to help equip the church and Christian leaders on how to lead faithfully in the current times and the current moments, how to understand the times and how to know how to live into that. And so uh, we have the wonderful privilege of being able to track all these viewpoints about people's beliefs and uh, perspectives, and then also look through certain lenses. So for example, you know, we look through generational lenses. We've done a number of studies about different generations. We get to explore topics that are important to the church, like evangelism and missions, and what do people believe about those topics, what are their understandings, how do they engage with them. Uh, And then we also get to do a number of studies on general topics of interest. So we did one on households, how how did your household dynamics influence the way that your faith grows, Hmm. or what are your perspectives about being a Christian in a work environment, or thinking about what your vocational calling is. So we explore these kind of general world topics through the lens of the Christian faith. Uh, As we do our research, we start to see themes that show up in lots of different places. And suddenly we realize, oh, that's actually really a thing (laughs) Um, when we keep seeing it over and over again. So I want to zero in on Gen Z in just a minute and some themes that you guys are noticing. But before we do that, can you tell me over the past 30 years, have there been any trends that have developed over the past 30 years that that are particularly interesting to you? Well, interesting, but maybe not encouraging (laughs) in Mm -hmm. that we've definitely seen a decline in the way that people engage with church. So the most obvious and and straightforward metric is that people attend church in person less frequently. This is all pre-COVID, of course. 
Um, But there was a tapering off. So whereas in previous generations, people might have attended church on average three to four times a, a month. Now, you know, the average is somewhere between one and two times a month. And so that is a really different dynamic speaking to the way that they live out their faith. Uh, we've also seen trends where people are doing what I would call like a concierge version of of faith. They are pulling together different resources, which is wonderful that all these resources exist, but there's podcasts and there's videos and you know, you might have everything from a Bible project explainer video to an actual sermon on video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's worship music and there's books galore and study guides. And they kind of curate their own experience of their faith. And so, again, that connection to the local church has changed pretty dramatically. But it's not that people are just completely falling off from faith. It's the way that they engage with their faith is much more kind of individually determined Hmm. um, and practiced in smaller little cohorts as opposed to, you know, universally across a specific church community. So is it fair to say that there's maybe easier access to content than ever before, but maybe decline in, in relationships. Yes, exactly. So we see exactly that. We see a lot of churches that kind of specialize in a certain generation. So even within the church, uh, you will see you know a certain group be really the focus of that church. And also those relationships don't go as deeply. Uh, because people are you know, not spending as much time in church community. And in addition to not being there as consistently on Sunday, they're also not there on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday morning or whatever else used to be more the norm. And so, again, people are still practicing their faith. It's just they're doing it in a very different way. What's been yeah. fascinating is during COVID, that's actually served to be a positive thing because you couldn't connect with your church in many cases for a long time physically, and you couldn't attend a regular worship service, at least not in the normal way, right? And Mm -hmm. so in some ways, it was actually good that you had large cohorts of Christians who already had other ways of living out their faith, and were already doing Bible studies with friends on their own, and were already, you know, following six different podcasts of their favorite preachers. So they were kind of getting fed they just weren't, like you said, being shaped through relationship in the same way. Hmm. I'm really curious, and maybe there's not an answer to this, but I'm really curious the impact of that kind of diet, high in content, but maybe low in relationships over time. I, I mm-hmm. even think, you know, maybe this is mixing a metaphor, but if you, if you have the image of like an oven in terms of developing faith slowly over time in the context of relationships and in context of the church versus like a microwave quick and and good and interesting and and entertaining, but maybe, maybe the roots don't go quite as deep. That's just kind of my guess. What what do you see? That is a really good analogy. Yeah. So actually that's very much what we see. Uh, And we've, we've done some great research that came out last year called Faith for Exiles is a book that came out written by David Kinnaman, our president. And, you know, the research was conducted by our team here. And what we did is dug into who are those people whose faith seems to be the most vibrant. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of those components of a vibrant faith um, was relational connectedness. So this was a really cool premise. You know, if anyone has followed David Kinnaman's books in the past, he's done a lot of research on people who left the church, Mm -hmm. uh, people who maybe grew up in the church through their childhood and teen years. And then when they got to be young adults, 
uh, they left. And so he's published a couple of books on that. And then we said, well, what makes the people stick around who stick around? And so we did this book, Faith for Exiles. And what it implies is we live in a world that's a little bit like being in exile. We don't live in a, in a heavily Christian valued nation in the same way anymore, right? Our culture is not. So there's not that pressure to be engaged in your faith. And yet there is a group of Christians. And in this case, when we were looking at that 18 to 29 year old young adult, uh, there was about 10% of these, these um, young adults who were what we'd call resilient disciples. And so they were not only engaged in church, but they had a clear sense of how their work and career actually integrated with their faith. They were very missional in the way that they engaged with culture. They had a deep relationship with Jesus. And then one of the five key factors to these resilient disciples was they had meaningful relationships. And those relationships weren't just, you know, I, I have a strong relationship with my pastor or, you know, I have a Bible study group that encourages me. It was even things like growing up, I had friends of different ages who were adults who kind of mentored me or I have people who can tell me the truth about myself. Or I have someone who encourages me to grow spiritually. So these are just general relational metrics mm-hmm. that were much more per- pervasive in these, what we call resilient disciples, which suggests that, and especially because we're looking at ones about when they were teens and kids, suggests that those relationships, um, the deep knowledge of each other and working through life with each other is formative. And it really does form that deep faith in the same way, like you described, you bake bread at a low temperature and it just comes out wonderfully fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fascinating. And I love the term resilient disciples even because it it is confusing. I think maybe especially in American, in the American context, even the word Christian, it can have a whole host of different connotations. I, Mm -hmm. I mean, I even had conversations where someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian, they say, oh, cool, like you're, you're a follower of Jesus. And they'll say something to the effect of like, whoa, well, not, not like that far, you know, like. Right. And it's just it's just interesting. Uh, I think probably there's been times and places historically where you're either uh, a Christian or you're not. But perhaps in the American context, there's there's this like third gray area category that that exists. Yes, we definitely uh, historically have seen self-identification with Christianity being very high, easily eight out of 10 people at a point in time a couple of decades ago. But in the last 15 to 20 years, um, and even more prominently in the last 10 years, that has shifted pretty dramatically. And we've seen a a lot of falling off from self-identification with Christianity, Hmm. such that now you only have about seven or even just, you know, high 60% who would say, uh, I call myself a Christian. And like you said, there's quite a few of those who it's like, that's because I come from a Christian family sure, or, sure. or I'm, I'm Christian because I'm also not, I don't know, Jewish or Hindu or whatever. So it's just a, a way of, of naming their historic family traditions. Hmm. But the proportion who actually say my faith is important to me and they're actually practicing that faith by being engaged in a faith community is really only about a quarter of Americans. So it's a very big gap between that self-identified number and then the ones who actually live it out. That is fascinating. Like you said, fascinating, but discouraging. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Talk to me about Gen Z. First of all, I might need you to define Gen Z for me, but but then in terms of like, what does the future of the Christian faith look like, at least here in the States? 
Yes, that's a really good question. So first of all, Gen Z uh, could be a placeholder name, although sometimes it sticks. Um, but it just as you have, you know, baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z is this cohort of Americans that was born in 1999 or later. So they're basically right now your young 20s, your college students, your, your teens. We don't know how far down it'll go for sure. We haven't cut the bottom end of it yet. But, you know, these students um, extend probably as low as elementary school. And at some point we make the determination, ah, this is a new group in terms of what they've experienced in their life. So we call them something new. Hmm. Um, so basically this podcast is is mainly focused on Christian school communities. That would be everybody participating from kindergarten yes. through 12th grade is Gen Z. Exactly. So okay. yes, the school community is serving these children right now, <laughs> for sure. And I say placeholder name because we're going through the alphabet and sometimes uh, generations get then renamed when something sticks. So for millennials, they started out as Generation Y. And now, you know, they, they tried a few names, mosaics and a few other things and millennials stuck. So we might come up with a new name for Gen Z, but it's... <laughs> Who's they, Brooke? Help me I know. <laughs> it, is, it is really funny. There is no authority on this matter. It's basically whoever gets repeated enough that it starts to stick. Yeah, it's quite yeah, a funny thing. Sure. I, in my in my heart of hearts, have this desire one day to try to like influence that and just see what happens. <laughs> if hey, I can get a name. name I'll just start saying it like crazy and we'll get it out there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, as a parent with kids in Christian school... Uh, I'm a parent of Gen Z, right? And so mm -hmm. this is a generation that I obviously care a ton about and I'm very curious about because I can see how they're different. And let's think first about what are those factors that have shaped them. So what defines a generation are social and geopolitical events that happen during their formative years that shape the way they see the world. That's wow. why we have generations, wow. right? So that's the most important thing to, is to realize we're, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about somehow they're seeing things differently because of what they experienced growing up. Mm -hmm. So this generation, and my daughter was born the year the iPhone came out, this generation is shaped by technology in a way that no generation before has been shaped by that sort of technology, right? They have never known a moment when there wasn't an iPhone in their hand. I remember having to learn habits myself as a parent, watching my child drawn to this bright screen of like, oh, wow, this is doing something to her brain. I'm going to have to put this away <laughs> yeah, because yeah. she's drawn to it. So we have all been running an experiment on our children of what happens when you give them shiny screens that have a lot of power. With no and data to go off of because this exactly. is brand new. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we are, you know, they're gerbils. We're, <laughs> we're experimenting, <laughs> on them, unfortunately. So that will be definitive about their generation, that we have had to learn social norms, ethical norms. Um, even legal norms around this sort of information technology that we never had before. They also have experienced, and this is related to the technology, an unprecedented level of anxiety and depression, hmm. uh, such that we have seen rates of self-harm and suicide skyrocket, not only in teens, but in preteens. And part of that is fueled by social media. So just like you would have peer pressure in a normal situation, well, you amplify that when you add information technology. And so a lot of the normal things that kids experience have gotten blown out of proportion because of the reach of their influence and communication. So that's pretty substantial. Just those first two features of Gen Z, I mean, are fascinating. And as you, as you list them, I think, oh, yeah, I, mean, I didn't really think about... I mean, how 
just immersive those those features are. That's so true. And mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, exactly. So that that's huge. And and also if you're thinking about the school environment and learning, the way that information technology processes information is different than how our brains are used to processing. So our learning has changed. We used to really have to think deeply about problems in order to find the answer and solve it. We used to have to go and do research and ask lots of people and seek lots of sources to find information, right? And now information is either available immediately or it's actually not available. Like it's, we, we don't have that sense of determinedness to go and seek out knowledge. So it means that we have an over amplified perspective on our own knowledge or capacity to get knowledge and an under amplified perspective on our sense of wisdom on how to use that knowledge for good. So that, I mean, that has huge implications for educators, right? How do they, how do they teach students what, again, I will call resilience, right? The ability to keep working hard at a problem and how do you teach them critical thinking when the primary means of communicating and interacting with the world, this piece of technology or technologies that they're using don't work that way. So it's a whole new educational challenge is how do we teach rightly in this context and And teach in a way that will will really educate and not just stuff minds and pass tests. And Brooke, I don't know if this gets its own bullet point or whether it's maybe a subset of technology and anxiety kind of combined, but I sometimes imagine, and I probably, it's probably like an over-idealized image in my mind, but I think, you know, if I could rewind and and live my life in a smaller community where I'm not aware of everything happening around the world all the time, mm-hmm. which has been made possible through technology, I, I feel as though like what I think about in a given day, probably 75% of it has nothing to do with the the actual world I'm living in, in terms of my actual yes. relationships, my family, my workplace. It's abstract. It's it's around the world or around the country at the very least, but doesn't necessarily have a bearing on, you know, the the few mile radius in which I actually live and do my life. Yes. So you just brought up something that's really important and amazing to to um, to think about with regards to what that does to our brains. Yeah. So the connected generation study that we did. Uh, was a little bit older than Gen Z. These are actually millennials. They were 18 to 35, but the same the same learnings there apply to Gen Z, which is we did this study in 25 countries. So this was what was fascinating. We call it the connected generation because so many of their experiences were the same. And we asked them some questions about like how they interact with the world and then also about relationships. Hmm. So here are a few stats they told us. 77% said events around the world matter to me. And 57% said, I feel connected to people around the world, right? Because social media and technology allow me to do that. But only 33% said, I often feel deeply cared for by those around me. And 32% say, I feel like someone believes in me. So what matters is the juxtaposition of those two contexts. I am deeply aware and connected to everything in the world. And yet I lack the relational security to process all of that. And that blows our mind, literally. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot of why we see this anxiety because 
what you just described is like, we were made for that. We were made for small relational community. We weren't made to know all things. That's God's role, right? Yeah, but yeah. yet, of course, we're curious. We want to. And of course, of course, it's good to learn. But our brains are just not processing all the world events and all the conflicts and global warming and all the, you know, the many things that are, you know, shuffling our days and, yeah. and causing, causing disaster. And, and yet not to have that strength and confidence in my relationship and my connection to place at home. Totally. And so that creates a massive sense of anxiety because you feel like I'm out of control. Like the world is just happening to me and I have no hope in that. And I'm just I'm thinking, you know, totally just just guessing from, from the impression of this conversation and this data so far, I would imagine there'll be a, a growing population of agnostics simply from the, yeah. the sense of like, I don't have the ability to make sense of or sort or even listen to all the, the stories around the world and all the... the events around like it's just it, you feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with this kind of connectedness and there's a sense of like oh i can't master this and i can't even know this and, and yes. perhaps that has a bearing on my faith as well that that maybe this is just all beyond my pay grade and i should just i don't know yeah. not, not, not engage yeah no it's a good point so there's actually a couple of factors impacting and that's a perfect transition to some of the faith data that we've been tracking. Um, it's a it's a great point in that the number of people who would call themselves none. So we ask you re- your religion, you say, you know, atheist, agnostic. You just say, I don't know, none. I, <laughs> um, I'm not even atheist or agnostic. I just don't have a thought about that. Mm. So it is that very much that sense of just uncertainty about spiritual matters, about truth, right? And so... We have seen that number skyrocket. The percentage of nuns has gone from what used to be the teens to now a fully a third of Gen Z is either atheist, agnostic, or none. And also along with that, so that's a huge statement. Also along with that, we saw the number of people saying that they are actually atheist double in this generation from what has been 6-7% in all the generations before them to now 13% of Gen Z. That is a huge deal. And that also has to do a lot with their sense of what science gives us. So in their mind, science tells us truth. Religion tells us how we like to live. And so it's not, there's not an equation there with religious beliefs and truth, but science definitely equals truth. And so there's often more faith in science than truth. And we've seen that in a number of ways that we've asked out of Gen Z. So Remember earlier, we were talking about the decline of engagement with Christianity. You have that trend happening at the same time you have all these nuns. And so what you have is a shift in the balance, in the U.S. at least, where, you know, it used to be very much a nation with very kind of agreed upon Christian values or or Judeo-Christian values. And that's absolutely not the case now. It's not that they've adopted any other religious values. It's just that there's a sense of, hey, whatever works for you, works for you. And there's not a clear moral standard and there's not a clear standard of what we're even doing here. And that can be, uh, that, that has one perspective in terms of just faith. It also can be related to this anxiety number, anxiety and depression, you know, uh, sense that we're seeing that that's, that's a hopelessness. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's no hope in that. <laughs> so Brooke, everything you're describing, I, I have to wonder, and maybe this is beyond the scope of what the Barna group does. 
but is the solution like bearing down and like really drilling in to students? I'm thinking like apologetics as a strategy, or is that missing something mm-hmm. maybe deeper and more important? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't help but think of that relationship absence because I think maybe a first instinct is, well, let's like, break away from culture. Let's, let's create, you know, little communities where we're not engaging the rest of the world because look what it's doing to young people. But I, I wonder if that's going to actually exacerbate the problem. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, and I think for a while that has been the approach of the church and of Christian schools is let's create a bubble. And then we find that as soon as people walk out the bubble, they fall off the rails. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't live with them, doesn't sustain them. And also it's producing this, this sense of imbalance and divisiveness, you know, in our culture. And so that's not helpful. That's not working. Um, And also, you know, the younger generation, Gen Z is, is kind of telling us like, that's not how we think about things. So if we're listening to them, you caught exactly it. What they're saying is they actually do really want relationships. They do really care about that and they need that and they miss that. And those are the formative things that make a difference in their lives. So rather than, well, I won't say rather than apologetics, we've done work with a number of ministries that do apologetics work. And what they've all said is the nature of apologetics has changed. It's no longer, let me convince you what truth is, or let Mm -hmm. me convince you why my perspective is the way to go. It's actually rather, hey, how are you doing? Like, (laughs) let me just start there. Where are you? How are you? Can I get to know you? And what that does, especially if someone doesn't have a Christian background, so if they're in this nun category, and maybe they even have parents who never took them to church, because there's quite a cohort within Gen Z where that's the case. What that does is show them that there's there's a value in and a joy in being deeply known. And they crave that, of course, because that's how we're made, right? And then they're drawn to that. And then when they establish trust, then the deep questions come. And the deep questions for them are not about what happens to me when I die. And the deep questions for them are not about, am I forgiven for my sins? The deep questions are, oh, wait, is there something other than this life? Is there a God? Am I really loved? Am I really known? So it's a whole different set of questions. And the way that you engage those questions is very different than we would have done, let's say, with Gen X, which is 20 years older. And grew up in a different environment. So, Brooke, may I ask you, is your job rather discouraging? I mean, is there is there hope? <laughs> like what what gets you excited or encourages you? You mentioned having children that are part of Gen Z as well. What can people in our roles in you know whether in Christian schools or as members of a, of a local congregation, like what is there to be done? I, there's the theme of relationships that keeps coming back. So like get to know somebody, what else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so it's funny you say that because when I will present some of this data, I often find myself at a certain point in the presentation, my heart rate's beating really fast and my mm-hmm. blood pressure is going up. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, this is, this is creating a sense of anxiety, but I do feel there's hope. And so I actually look at this generation as an opportunity for some pruning, to be honest. There's a lot of things that we've grown really comfortable in, in our Christianized culture. And I think it's made us lazy. So we've gotten lazy about our relationship with God, about leaning on him and needing him every moment. We've gotten lazy about investing in others intergenerationally. 
Uh, very often churches especially have created programs that cater to different groups or life stages, I would say. And that has its value, but then we lose that intergenerational connectedness, which is where wisdom develops, hmm. which is where love for someone who's not like you develops, right? So we've gotten lazy about that. And we've also just gotten lazy about studying scripture, to be honest. Hmm. And here's the thing with this generation, even though they are the least Christianized generation, that doesn't mean they're not interested in the Bible. They're very intrigued. They're not yet ready to say, oh, well, let me read it because it tells me the truth about the world. They're like, well, what does it say? I am really curious what it says. And so they're, I would say they're more open-minded than sometimes previous generations before them because they're not coming, for the, for the most part, I mean, there's some that have, they're not, they're not coming with as much church baggage as a generation that maybe did grow up in the church and felt stifled by that in some way. So we don't have as much of that backlash. And I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of clean through our way of engaging with our faith. And the other thing is, uh, that gives me hope is I think the fresh eyes that this generation gives us on what matters to them can redirect our own hearts. And let me give you a few examples of that, both in Connected Generation and in our new Gen Z study. We ask questions about people's uh, or, or young people's concerns about the world and how they want to live out their faith. And we found that the vast majority, two thirds to three quarters would say of, of churchgoers would say, I'm excited by the mission of the church in the world. If they're in, you know, in the church body, I'm really looking forward to chances to contribute to my church. My religious beliefs are an important part of who I am. And this is the most important one uh, that we've seen, again, in both of those studies, that 75% of Gen Z churchgoers and same in the uh, millennial study say, my faith motivates me to make a difference in the world. What that means is, it doesn't mean I'm going to go out and evangelize. It means I want to bring God's goodness here to this earth, and I want mm. to be a part of that. And so for them, they get, and I'm making some generaliz generalizations, but Gen Z tends to get very concerned about justice issues, about whether or not people are getting an opportunity that they should have, or whether or not they're be tre being treated fairly. They're hypersensitized to that and they're very aware of it and they're concerned for people who they perceive might be experiencing injustice hmm. they're also concerned about our climate and our 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 world we call it creation care and that like genuinely like very important to them like this is the world that the lord has made and we have to care for it and so their concerns are not coming out of a place of being brainwashed by culture their concerns are coming out of genuine passion for their faith and for the God who made this world hmm. and wanting to live rightly by his word. And so that is to me a door to the scripture. And it's probably going to be just as informative and educational for the adults and even seniors in our lives as it is for Gen Z. Let's dive into the scripture through that lens of what interests you. And let's see what God has to say about these things, because he has a lot to say about these things. And, and so finding what that hook is, what's interesting to them and digging into his word in that way, gets them excited about studying the Bible, gets them excited mm -hmm. about building that foundation on the scriptures that will really last them through their entire lives. And Brooke, I'm interested, and maybe this is topic for a whole nother conversation, but when you add kind of the American politics dimension, I you, you can see in Gen Z especially this sense that, wait a minute, be, because I think maybe historically, and I could be 
overgeneralizing here, but it seems as though like Democrat and Republican, there's been like alliances made historically, and this group gets to care about these issues, and this group gets to care about these issues. But in Gen Z, perhaps we're seeing engaging with the biblical text and realizing that it's not quite so A or B, you know, options. Yes. I'm just curious. I mean, that's a whole nother world and whole nother dimension to this, but you can see maybe different attitudes about politics in Gen Z as well. Yeah. So what's happening there is you kind of define it really well, even just by mentioning the two parties is they are sensitive to different viewpoints. They've in many cases been trained by the world to do that, but not in a bad way. It's like, I actually really want to listen to what you have to say on this issue and I'm going to respect your perspective on it. And I might disagree, but I need to listen. Some of the where that goes wrong in Gen Z is actually when they do have a sense of, hey, if you believe it, then it's truth for you and I can't question sure, it. So sure, we have yeah. to teach them not to do that, right? That is important. But they genuinely don't see everything as opposing viewpoints. It's, you know, they're seeing all the gray in between. And they many of them increasingly see themselves in a third way. Like it's not either of those. It's a little bit of both. And my viewpoint is this nuance. And and they want to wrestle with that. They really do want to wrestle with what are the issues here and what is good and what is right. Hmm. Um, and it's not so straight and narrow of like, well, because this one issue is important, you know, right to life is important to the church. Therefore, this is the direction we're going. It's like, well, there's yeah, nuances to yeah. that. How can we how can we do a both and? And they, they understand that and they've been taught that in, in the way that they interact with the world. And I think that's actually refreshing for anyone to be able to see a way through. Yeah, oh, for sure. And it, and it brings them maybe an added complicatedness, but maybe that's one that's yes. needed right now. Yes. And, and in truth, they are looking at what's happening right now. For the most part, the, the majority opinion within Gen Z is like, what is up with the older generations and this election? Honestly. Hmm. Uh, and they're kind of like, what has happened? Now, I, I do want to put in a caveat here that there is a contingency of disenfranchised Gen Zers who do tend to be male um, that we, we really need to keep our eyes on. How are we reaching out to them and connecting with them? Because what also happens is you've got corners of uh, social media and the internet where they are finding basically people who value them and pay attention to them and show them love. And invite them in, and they are adopting oftentimes extremist views because they're finding connection in those places. And there is a risk to certain profiles um, of individuals who are disconnected from community in a lot of other ways, who then get deeply drawn in to certain groups politically. That is a risk. And honestly, at the age that many of them are, it's like they're still learning to understand the world. So they really need a lot of guidance on that, and they need to be wrestling with and talking through these topics, not just jumping on a bandwagon. Explain to me what you mean a little bit. Give me a clear picture. You said young men, but but tell me a little bit more. Yeah. So one thing we've noticed is on the whole, this generation leans more progressive and even liberal in their kind of perspectives on social issues and different world issues. But there is a, a subgroup who is extreme right. And what we think is happening there, there's probably two things. One is a little bit of a, a counter reaction to the culture around them leaning more progressive and saying, mm-hmm. look, that's going too far. But there's also often in, in that group, a group of people who feel disenfranchised from communities and from relationships. They don't feel valued. 
they don't see their clear place. And if they don't feel like they belong, they almost sometimes feel like others are pushing them out. Like, well, I don't really connect here. I don't really belong here. They don't really care about me here. So they go and find that community and those relationships elsewhere. And very often they will find themselves connecting to what I would call right-wing extremist group. And I don't want to label people, but my point is that their worldview is being shaped because of their desire for relationship and connectivity. Hmm. So if they find someone who affirms them in who they are, that person or that group can be extremely influential in how their worldview is developing. And we have seen in our data that there is a minority group within Gen Z who's very at risk at being shaped in a pretty extreme way simply because they're just lacking a sense of being valued and affirmed in the world. Mm. Oh, that's so true. And, and, you know, it's, I think in the polarized climate we're living in, it's, it's the temptation to label like one of these groups is the bad guys and one of these groups is the good guys. But, but man, as a follower of Jesus or as a community of, of followers of Jesus, like how can we communicate our love and, and respect even and our acceptance of, of these young people so that mm-hmm. rather than becoming extreme versions of these things that, that, that we can, there can be relationship and communication yes. uh, and health. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think there's a huge opportunity for dialogue and really listening to and valuing this generation. I would say both millennials and Gen Z, because we do value them. We do you know, they were made in the image of God. We do want to hold them up and affirm them and help them to grow. And so we need to make sure that the way that we're engaging with them is not confrontational back to when we were talking earlier about, you know, do we just dig in (laughs) and kind of equip them to live more Christianly? Actually, no, it's, it is a bit of the opposite. Let's find the nuances and how God has uniquely made them and how the world is shaping them and have that conversation with them ongoing so that they're processing what's happening in the world in a way that's healthy and biblical. Hmm. Brooke, this data you're sharing is fascinating. I've got a feeling I'm going to listen to this conversation several times over and take more pages of notes as I've done (laughs) this conversation. If I may end on on a rather personal note, you're exposed to all this data all, all the time in your work how does your perspective, having access to this information, how does that impact the way you disciple your own children? Mm, yeah, tremendously. Um, <laughs> so I would say the first part is recognizing the importance of that critical thinking skill. So back to our earlier uh, notation about technology not giving us the skills to think critically about something and to wrestle with the topic and to do hard things. Um, That's actually one of my first approaches with my kids is I'm always looking to make life harder on them in a a healthy way. (laughs) Well, how else can we think about that? Or let's go dig deeper or, you know, let's not take the shortcut, right? And it's very easy as a parent to take the shortcut. It's very tempting, but I spend the time to do the hard work. And so we do a lot of reading and discussing and we go to museums and we talk about everything. I feel like I'm a constant educator, partly because I'm trying to model for my kids and immerse them in critical thinking, because I do think that will ultimately help them to wrestle with questions of faith. So it equips them to be able to wrestle with questions of faith. Mm. We also spend a lot of time talking about what they're hearing and seeing. Not They're not on social media because they're not old enough yet to be there, but just you know in their environment, right? And so 
pop, basically interpreting culture around them, pop culture or just general culture yeah. around them. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? How are you interpreting that? Um, we live in an urban environment, so we come across all sorts of things. And so whatever we're seeing, it's a conversation about everything. Oh, hey, what do you think is going on over there? What do you think about that? Has that ever come up before? How do you talk about that with your friends? It's this ongoing dialogue. And I think that's really critical for Gen Z is they are relational. They are dialogical. And so we have to get into the practice of that with them. And so that's really impacted my work as a parent. And I call it my work because I look at other models of parents, including maybe from my, my parents' generation and my generation and say, you know, I don't want to be the hands-off parent, but I also don't want, want to be the helicopter parent. What's the, what's the in-between where I'm actually really intentionally feeding into my kids' development, helping them to process and see the world in a certain way. And so it's honestly all about intentionality. Everything we do, it's like, well, what are they going to take away from that? What are they going to learn from that? And how are they going to be shaped by that experience? So we don't ever just on a whim just say, hey, we just love doing this thing. We're going to do it. And we always think about, well, what are they going to take away from that experience? Or is that teaching them a good lesson? Um, mm -hmm. So we're just super intentional about the world that they are being shaped by and wanting to make sure that they are seeing God in all of those experiences in one way or another. Brooke, for somebody who's interested in this conversation we've just had, like myself, are there helpful resources you can point us to to continue thinking about these things? Yeah. So we have a bunch of different studies and books that are really the source of the data we've just talked about today. Faith for Exiles, I think, is a great one. It's very relatable for educators and parents, and it's a really applicable framework of uh, what are some factors that I need to be building into my kids' life right now or my students' lives right now. Mm -hmm. um, our two Gen Z studies, so we have one that just came out, and then we have another one that was done four years ago right when the first Gen Zers turned 18. Um, the two together give you a really good picture of what's impacting and influencing this generation. And then finally, there's one for younger um, kids called Guiding Children. And that was one where we studied those who connect with six to 12 year olds. So it might be uh, people in youth ministry, it might be educators. We even interviewed like video game and toy developers. We had a really fun time for that one, trying to understand what's influencing six to 12 year olds and specifically the way that they engage with scripture as well. So mm -hmm. I love that Guiding Children book for that earlier age group as well. Brooke, this has been absolutely fascinating. I am so grateful. I told you we had a snow day today, so it was a drive in, but this was absolutely worth it. Snow <laughs> and everything. This has been an absolute blast. I'm so grateful. That's awesome. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.